in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Nathan Lutz, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Dustin Melbardis. How are you doing, Dustin? I'm great. It's a windy day here in Texas, but I am happy to be inside, safe, away from the rain, away from the storm, and uh, talking about a great movie. Kind of the opposite here in Pittsburgh, in the uh, Pittsburgh area, we're actually out in Johnstown today. Very cold winter day, but absolutely no wind, so it's that perfect winter stillness, and... For scary movies like today's discussion, I've got a puppy sleeping in my foot for maximum comfort. <laughs> so we are all good. <laughs> the cold is tolerable when you have puppy space eater. Exactly. Who is that talking? Funny you should ask. JD, <laughs> would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, I'm JD Donnelly, previously guest hosted on the um, Fargo episode. But this is much more my pool of knowledge when you bring up creatures and monsters and animals of all kinds. I'm creature creator, artist, all that jazz, and my specialty is monsters. So an absolute expert for this movie discussion and the choice of this movie, of course, was was yours because this just fits you so well. Yeah, I, I finally remember this movie, seeing it as a child. Yes, I did see this as a child. <laughs> and um, it's like a more obscure movie. Like, not many people remember it. So, like, every, every time like, I'm like, oh, what's a movie no one talks about? Like, Deep Rising. It's a fun movie. And it has lots of some really cool practical effects and creature designs going on. So it was yeah. interesting to revisit it at, at an older age in hindsight, too. <laughs> yeah, and for Justin and I, this is also a fitting movie because last year we reviewed another movie involving large boats that could be described as cruise ships under certain circumstances that you may have heard of. Probably not, but you may have heard of it, called Titanic. And uh, that's the movie that sank this movie because this movie was released one month after Titanic, which is... Just uh, not the time that you want to release other movies. That's right, audience. You've got your big boat boys right here. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to any other ocean liner movies... Yeah, when it comes to cruise ships, hey, I'm I'm down to do a speedboat movie. Let's <laughs> you just make sure Nathan and I are on the episode, and you guys are taken care of. Now I'm just picturing because if they were in theaters at the same time, having like you know, sweet old lady who might not know all the details, like go up, like, excuse me, can you give me a ticket to the boat movie? And then they get a ticket <laughs> to like Deep Rising when they thought they were getting going to Titanic. <laughs> right. How much time do you have? Oh, you've got dinner plans. Deep Rising. <laughs> So if- the monster was from the iceberg. <laughs> it was frozen in there. And Titanic awoke it when it cracked it open. <laughs> that sounds like a great creature design. How awesome would it be if the ship that the monster from this movie was swimming around in the POV shot at the beginning that opens the movie was actually like the Titanic itself? Well, that's in the Atlantic Ocean. We- it's, it's in the wrong Pacific. ocean, but. But ironically, ironically, there actually is a children's book 
franchise that was adapted into an anime at one point called Serendipity, which is about a friendly pink sea monster who hatches from an egg that was frozen in an iceberg. (laughs) So, hey, we've stumbled onto something great here. All right, well, we've talked around it quite a lot, but Dustin, what is the movie that we are watching today? Oh, we already said it. It is Deep Rising from 1998. All right. This is a movie starring Treat Williams, Famica Jansen, Anthony Heed, Kevin J. O'Connor, Wes Studi, Derek O'Connor, and Jason Fleming. It was released in 1998, grossing $11,000,000, just a little north of that, which is, for its budget, a serious loss. Um, it placed 125th in the box office, so woof. Uh, the movie ahead of it was at number 124 was Mr. Magoo, and Ouch. at 126 was The Full Monty, which is a stage play I've seen. Number one movie that year was Titanic. IMDb rating was 6.1. Rotten Tomatoes scores it at 30% for the critics and just a little bit better for the audience score at 43%. So not a movie that was reviewed well on when it first came out and definitely was not winning any awards except that Roger Ebert happened to include the film on his most hated list since he thought it was <laughs> totally derivative of a whole bunch of other films, especially as a clone of Alien with French paint job. So this is a movie that uh, got a lot of derision when it came out. Yeah, but I mean, I was just watching a clip last night. Tremors was the same way. Tremors was a box office bomb, and now it's revived via cult classic just because of VHS rentals, which I, this is a movie I did not see in theaters as a child, definitely. But I did remember finally watching it with my dad on TV. So it's I think it's gained like fresh life on streaming services and like people watch like I know it was on HBO Max for a while. So people just finding it in the annals. Yes. Well, so I know, JD, you've definitely seen this movie before, but coming back to it this time, what were you expecting and what did you find out? Honestly, the most nostalgic aspects of it for me are the monsters and the creature design, because I was the weird little kid that rooted for the dinosaurs, sharks, monsters to eat the people. Because usually there's like a methodology to these kind of movies where it's jerks that get their comeuppets in some way at the teeth of nature, so to speak. <laughs> so um looking back at it, like now that I'm older and wiser and, you know, an English major and writer now and actually understand the mechanics of writing a good story... Some parts fell flatter than what I remember, um, but honestly, for it, is it a good movie? Objectively, maybe not, but is it a fun movie? Yes. <laughs> and hey, this monster got to eat quite a lot of people before it went out. Yep. Also, lots of really good use, like gold, like the era when C- the CGI was in its infancy, so they were still relying on a lot of practical effects for stuff, which is which is why I greatly appreciate. You trying to say that thing wasn't real? yeah unfortunately i don't think there's any currently living vertebrates or invertebrates that have multiple mouths (laughs) like i don't think there's any that have multiple feeding orifices (laughs) even in even in the sea come on octopuses you have to get there eventually octopodes octopodes technically octopodes is the correct plural it's not octopi it's octopodes. and here i thought it was just a debate between octopi and octopuses nope technically it's octopode octopodes all right well dustin how about you have you had you seen this movie before no way never had i seen this movie i I definitely went to theater to see titanic but um we, we were briefly mentioning how this was maybe overlooked 
even when we uh when I got the text about seeing this movie, I was seconds away from streaming uh Deep Impact. Ah. <laughs> because while the the name of the movie was kind of, maybe I kind of remembered it, I had no clue uh what I was getting into, which is my favorite feeling when it comes to a new movie is really not knowing what's going to happen. So I watched it for the first time right around Christmas, New Year's Eve, and then I watched it again last night. Uh, but yeah, it was it was new to me. So uh, that's that's one of the best things about this podcast. Yeah, likewise, this is a new new one for me. I had actually a different movie with deep in the title that was <laughs> Deep Star Six, which is another underwater monster movie. That uh, and there's Deep Blue Sea and which one of them have cruise ships in them? Because we'll do that next. <laughs> have you guys done a Poseidon adventure yet? Oh my gosh, we need to do Poseidon Adventure. That's the movie that starts out with a giant wave hitting... That's the one where the cruise ship ends up upside down. Okay. Funny fact, when I was looking up info about this movie, apparently Deep Rising is the American title, and internationally it's Octolus. That's so much better! Octolus. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I would Octolus like Octolus Prime. <laughs> Alright, well. well it, it, it would better than the working title, which I believe was... Tentacle. <laughs> yeah, and I can open up the doors to a totally different genre. An audience that is sharing the same theater with you, but having a very different reaction. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I believe that it is time we are going to come back after an advertisement break and spoil this movie for you. So if you, our wonderful audience members, have not seen this movie before, go watch it and come back right after these messages for a discussion of the plot by Dustin. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. Welcome back, everyone, and hopefully you've watched the movie because Dustin is about to totally spoil it for you. Dustin, take it away. The Argonautica. The most luxurious cruise ship built to lavish expectations and catering to only the richest pleasure seekers in the world. On board, Trillian St. James is slinking about looking for easy marks, suffering through the welcome speech of the ship's owner and the host of the party, Simon Panton. Meanwhile, Finnegan, Joey, and Layla are blasting through choppy waters on their way to an unknown destination, carrying their clients a literal street fighter international cadre of mercenaries to their unknown destination. Hey, if the cash is there, we do not care. What a life philosophy. Before these two boats can rendezvous, a third actor emerges from the deep, rising <laughs> toward the ship at breakneck speeds. An all-out assault from an unseen danger eliminates most of the life on board. When the mercenaries, led by culturally ambiguous Hanover, take over Finnegan's boat to stage a hijack, they are surprised to see that there's no one to intimidate and no clues as to what has happened, aside from a lot of blood. After merging with the remaining survivors, we encounter the tentacled beast, which begins to methodically pick off the remaining members of the crew. 
The game is survival and they are severely outmatched. The only option remaining is possible extraction from the nearest island, which is accessible only from the jet skis on board the cruise ship. Last second twist as Canton attempts to kill any witnesses to the events of the night to escape and collect his insurance money for the loss of his investment. A cluster luck of chain reaction explosions destroy the beast and any remains of the Argonautica, while Trillian, Finnegan, and thank God, Joey, find their way to the island where they are welcomed by the roar of something sinister. Now what? (laughs) (laughs) That is a great... Great synopsis, Justin. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I put some effort into that one. <laughs> Good job. Two tentacles. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing that this movie brings up is when you have a good monster mystery or just monster horror movie, what makes it a good one? This is a movie that was really poorly reviewed at the time, and now it's like a really fun, large-budget B-movie to go back to. But what for you in a movie that has a plot this complicated works and doesn't work with that trope. I liked particularly looking back now and watching it while I'm older, how it starts off like it almost genre hops, like because it starts off, you think, oh, it's going to be a heist movie. And then suddenly there's a third party coming in and it's the monster. And suddenly it turns, you have enemies becoming, you know, tenuous allies and all that jazz. So, like, it's almost like a, another good analogy would be Predator, where Predator was set up, do you think it's a military movie? And then halfway through, it becomes a sci-fi horror. So this is kind of like saying, like, oh, you think it's going to be a heist movie, and then it turns into a survival horror. And also for me, you, you're MVP. Like, the focus of the movie, you pay to see the monster. <laughs> Whether it be a Graboid, or an Octolus, or an alien, or... Xenomorph, yeah. Yeah. I, I really like what you said there about comparing it to a Predator, is that you think the movie's something, and it moves to something else. Because I, I, the, the idea of it being a heist, or that we're following this pickpocket-slash-criminal, you know, wanted in four countries, Trillian St. James, played by Famke Jensen, uh, that stops mattering really quickly. <laughs> yeah. The plot about intentionally sinking the ship for the insurance collection and requiring the assistance of these mercenaries to sink the ship and we can't know what's happening. All the guests would be safe on the lifeboats. That would be maybe a little too much to wrap up. So how about we have something wreck all of it, which is this monster. And and I I also like what you said. Like That's what we're here for. We want to see what what it is. I was discussing with Nathan, like if you... Because in my brain, uh, Deep Rising is more of an action with horror flavoring than a straight-up horror movie. But, like, if you were to theoretically only stick to the cast that's on the, merc- the cast of the mercenaries, Finnegan, Joey, and Layla, like, if you stuck with only their POV from the beginning of the film to when they get to the boat, and you think, like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a heist, it's a hijacking movie, and then you get on, like, wait, where is everybody? And then, but, like, basically omit all, like, the foreshadowing, like, the scenes with Trillian and, like, seeing, like, the saboteur messing up the ship, which turns out to be Canton. And, you know, the the beast initially attacking the ship, because that's all shown, like, through cut back and forth between the two groups until they meet up on the boat itself. Like, if you stuck with just the the borders, so to speak, using the pirate terminology, it would almost be straight up horror, because then you could almost end up with, like, a flavoring of the thing. Which, by the way, the beast was designed by Bakken, who did design the creature in The Thing. 
um, the 80s thing, not the 50s one, um, that, because then you'd have, like, you know, this group trying to figure out what the heck happened, and then you encounter survivors, and you'd be, like, one of them being a thief, so it's like, okay, well, who's telling the truth of, like, this person said this happened, this, like, at first they actually think there's multiple monsters, and then you find out at the tail end of the film that it's all one singular beast with multiple tentacles and mouths, but, so you could, it honestly would take very little editing to fully shift it into straight up horror. And like I said, more like flavoring like of the thing. We have like the human paranoia brought into it. I'm glad you mentioned the thing that I was going to tack on at the end of that, which was they don't know what it is. because, Or I guess we should say they don't know what they are because through most of the movie, they are believing it's several things. It is an infestation. Yep. Which makes sense from their point of Especially view. Especially for the tentacle designs, because they drew a lot of inspiration from bobbit worms, which ooh, one of the few animals that legitimately skeeve me out. They are a de- uh, undersea invertebrate. They can get up to, I think, like 18 or 20 feet long. And they, they're kind of like Sarlax from Star Wars, where they live in burrows and coral and underground, and they just have their mouths poking out, and they like grab nearby fish. But, like, as we see, like, the mouths of the Octolus has, like, multiple jaws that unfurl, almost in a very Demogorgon-esque manner. Uh, Bobbit worms legit have functioning jaws like that. can, like, basically slice fish in half. Uh, if you get bit by one, you can suffer permanent paralysis in the area you are bitten. It has scissor-like jaws, and it's called the Bobbit yes. worm? Who was the, who was the biologist who named it? <laughs> Because I think they were taking a little inspiration from some late 90s uh, media. <laughs> um, they're very, very old. Like, I'm pretty sure they were named long ago. And then the main body of the Octolus creature itself definitely draws inspiration from cephalopods like squids. And particularly the Vampirus Toothus, the vampire squid from hell. That's legit the scientific translation of that name. Especially since um, instead of having suckers on its tentacles, it has spikes. Because the vampire squid, it's a... It's own distinct member of the squid family. So in they too, instead of having suckers on their tentacles, they have. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely this is a movie that really gets its monster right and introduces that in with a whole bunch of other plots, which are in and of themselves, they're interesting, but the monster totally outshines them all. And to some extent, that makes me wonder if how you think that the casting decisions for this movie work with that, because all the casting decisions feel like an action movie kind of thing. Yeah, All like, the mercenaries are very, like, this feels very diehard for a bros. long time. Yeah. They're bros. They're all bros. They are there bros. And it's very fun for me. Yes, <laughs> yes. There aren't the salty sailors who are knowledgeable about yeah. the sea. The leading man, Finnegan, the everyday action hero star. Yep. They did try to get Harrison Ford into that role, and he turned it down. So they substituted Treat Williams. Not a bad substitute here. He's good. Um, I, and I, I feel as if, uh, if uh, how did I want to say this? If Indiana Jones and Han Solo needed a representative from Earth to be a part of their scoundrels club, <laughs> uh, then, then John Finnegan would fit the bill. He's not wearing a vest, but he's got the classic, like... He has a flannel. Uh, tie, the dad tie the flannel around your waist. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, and it, honestly, like for until like I watched rewatch it recently, I thought it was Bill Paxton. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, Sorry, Treat Williams. I gotta say, Russell, 
Troot Williams dresses a lot like Russell does. With that, that that's how I see, I've seen him a lot with the, with the flannel <laughs> around his waist tied tied around. It's very funny to watch. <laughs> Russell Guest, action hero on the Argonautica. Well, and uh, you know John Finnegan and his crew—they are boat people, sailing people. Uh, but we learn that the the mercenaries are not. Now we don't know much about what they do, but apparently. Working on the water isn't their number one thing. This is revealed to us through uh, T. Ray, the Australian representative of the uh, international crew, <laughs> that like, oh, I don't like this water stuff. It, it, it's the reason why. And, and I feel like this has to be done in this way. Stephen Summers or whoever it is that like set this up, they do a really over like painstakingly over the top job of not including too many plot holes. Like they're trying to give you an explanation for everything. Because if they were sailors or if they were uh-huh. pirates, they're not pirates, then they wouldn't need to get Finnegan and his crew involved at all. They would likely just kill them and take their boat. Or rent a boat. <laughs> or rent a boat. <laughs> so they need them for this reason. Um, it, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get to their destination. Yeah. Or- I mean, we can't say that they safely navigated there. They ran over I a speedboat. We, we killed uh, so, a speedboat, like, the, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So there's little stuff on the way that, like, in order to get here was mentally taxing <laughs> for the writer to be like, how do yeah. we get all these people here at the same time? Because they really wanted to be a mystery. And if Treat Williams as John Finnegan and his crew are just other members of the mercenary crew they're just their usual the, the, if if they were usually their ship operators for them then and, there wouldn't be any way to have it as a mystery of who hired who and also too like they're they're supposed to be the heroes we're rooting for if they're yes. mercenaries and we know they're intended to go rob a bunch of people we're not necessarily going to root for them and you know root for the monster to eat them so you got to you know keep your um the hands of your hero cast somewhat clean of yeah die somewhat yes. clean yeah so they were unwitting accomplices yeah. cro- caught in the crossfire which is one thing that kind of struck me as odd of this movie which is that um simon canton as played by anthony held um the owner of the argonautica who has decided to go in for this insurance scam how does he connect with this particular group of mercenaries? Because I feel like the fact that they're usually land-based implies to me a sort of alternate telling of his character, that he's actually a total landlubber. Well, he did. He screwed up the math. He did screw up the math. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I don't yeah. necessarily mean so much it needs to, that his character needs to be stupid. I just mean that his character seems to be someone who's like a landlubber to the point of like, He's built a ship that is so large that you can't tell that you're on the water anymore. Mm. He's tried to make it super luxurious. And there's almost an alternate version of this for me in which Finnegan should be the one who knows about the monster because Mm. he's the one who knows, he's the only one in this whole group other than his own crew who knows something about the ocean. Yeah. I I am actually going to touch on this a little later, uh, but not quite yet. Uh, But I'm, I'm glad that you arrived at the same point that I did. There's other things that are, are just so barely connected that, and you don't need an explanation, but I believe Canton even says to Finnegan, I know all about you. Finnegan. Oh, yeah. What does he know? <laughs> what, uh, how do they know each other? Um, uh, uh, Canton says, 
building this $487.6 million yacht is my life's dream? Well, that doesn't sound like a landlubber's no. life's dream. Um, like there's, there's some stuff that like eventually we're going to hit our wall as to what can be explained. Aside from that, they did, I'm going to say, a pretty good job of we got there. Yes. All right? We got here. And and now there's the scary unknown. I It was funny, though, you mentioned the plot holes. Like, they did do a good job plugging a lot of plot holes in this sinking ship. I will point out one I noticed on our rewatching last Boom. night, though, which is the whole, like, main crux of, like, acts, like half of Act 2 and 3 is that after Finnegan's boat kills a speedboat, <laughs> but they basically run over a speedboat that fell off the Argonautica when it was initially attacked by the monster. Um, they have to go onto the Argonaut itself and get replacement parts to fix their engine. And so the whole, like, second half of the movie is, like, we gotta get these parts back to our boat, because the Finnegan's boat is theoretically the only boat way yeah. off this Which initially floating. makes sense, because they want to fix their yeah. own ship. It's their own boat. When it gets to the point where, they, like, they lose the parts after a certain point, and it looks like, oh, we're gonna be trapped, and they eventually... the to survive, uh, Petucci makes it off via a uh, surfboard, but then uh, Finnegan and Trillian make it off via Ski-Doo, a s- jet ski. There was a whole bunch of unused lifeboats on the ship itself. Yeah. Why didn't they, like, if they, when they realized, oh, we can't take our own boat, why yeah. not just take yeah. a lifeboat? <laughs> yeah. But as Dustin says, we get there. We get to the ship and we get to this wonderful, awesome moment where they walk into the ballroom that we just saw this party in a couple of minutes ago. (laughs) And it's all messed up and destroyed. The lights are out. There's things sparking and there's blood everywhere. But no bodies. What the heck happened here? And that is just a great... Uh, a great moment and we get to the point it's just like ah this is the horror direction from from this moment on the horror direction is just great yeah, yeah exactly. like that's the moment it would shift from yeah. heist to yeah. something so to genre what is sort of what, what what are the scenes that stand out to you dustin about sort of the the horror that builds and works as this plot moves forward it's a good question i i think uh to, to start with the unknown assailant, uh, the, 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 the monster, the Octolus. This thing really makes short work of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Then, for the remaining 50 minutes, we have a methodical taking out of the others one at a time. Um, there's, there's the idea that this thing is smart enough to calculate. To close doors. And to, plan ahead. Yeah. Right. Um, it, now, I don't know why the Octolus is taking its time with this group. There is an important thing that happens, and JD, you mentioned Predator. <laughs> the, the word is, sorry, the phrase is, if it bleeds, we can kill it. <laughs> they shoot some of the tentacles, and sometimes either a tentacle or a group of them recoils away very fast. Ouch, that hurts. Stop pinching me. I'm going to pull this away. So there's the idea that these (laughs) absolutely ridiculous uh, firearms that they have. (laughs) Unlimited um, ammo. Yes. 1,000 ammo capacity. Those guns should weigh 70 pounds. Yep, yep. Um, That those ridiculous guns they have, 
So much fun, in fact, that some of the mercenaries are just shooting them because it's a blast, because they're bros. <laughs> bros on boats. Action movie bros with machine guns. Bros on boats. Yeah, um, I I think it's it's T-Ray and Vivo. They shoot it, and then they stop shooting it, and then they just unload again for, <laughs> because yeah. it's fun. Um, but but getting back to, like, so this thing can be combated in a way. Eventually, it becomes, we got to get off this boat. We have just the right amount of claustrophobic areas where it's like we're getting choked out. It is directing us somewhere. Um, I think the movie wouldn't be very, the idea wouldn't be very fun if this extremely powerful creature got them all at (laughs) once, which we have to believe it could, but it doesn't. It is directing them towards the hull. We don't know exactly why. That's where its kind of large, bulbous head with its eyeball is, but it's not like it needs that to eat, digest, or, sorry, not eat you alive, but drink you alive. Um, it, as far as whatever its purpose is, if you were to go the further step, and I think, JD, you probably have some experience with this, but the idea that this creature is intelligent or curious enough to play with its food. I mean, it could be the Octolus was, you know, it needed some mental stimulation. You know, like in the zoos, you got to give your tigers a pumpkin full of chopped meat every now and then. Um, Or it could be, from what I kind of gleaned with my background knowledge of just being a big big animal nerd, um, in the very beginning of the film, the opening shot is a, aside from the text, explained that the Dragon Triangle is the Pacific version of the Bermuda Triangle and a lot of ships disappear. They show from a POV of the monster swimming underwater, all these shipwrecks from across all whole bunch of eras, like ancient sailing vessels to more modern iron vessels that, um, it could be that one of the biggest things with predatory creatures is conservation of energy. Like you don't want to expend more calories than you're taking in. Otherwise you're going to starve to death. So, and most predators have actually very low success rate when it comes to hunting. Like, I think the highest one is the dragonfly with a 90% success rate. Most, like, big cats, like, the big predators we think of have, like, somewhere between the 20 and 40% success rate. So it could be it just, like, rather than, like, okay, it ate, like, a thousand passengers in, like, a short stint. If it still sends, like, oh, there's a couple morsels still on here. Well, maybe I attack a boat every couple decades or so and, like... I'll just make sure I get every little bit before going back underwater to hibernate for a bit. It could have been a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B of intelligence versus predatory nature. It is very interesting, the idea that it directs them to its larder. I I, I almost want to say it's a vomitorium from like ancient Mm. Rome, which wasn't really a thing. It's popularized by the Victorians. The idea was that ancient Romans would indulge in so much food, they would end up vomiting it out to indulge some more. Well, this creature, the Octolus, which... uh, Honestly, this kind of method of eating applies to owls, of all things, because it doesn't eat its prey, it drinks them, like a spider almost. So it ends up regurgitating the hard calcium skeletons of people, or assumedly fish in its native environment, but uh, it ends up they end up finding the room where like all the bones of the former passengers are located. Well, I think that gives us the the detail, the, the the describing the biology of a creature like this gives us the detail that makes this a fun, new, scary type of monster is that we get to see Billy has digested <laughs> yes. We get to see, it, yeah, yeah, it's it's 
unfathomable <laughs> to uh, to have a creature that has mouths on the ends of every single one of its tentacles, uh, of which we truly don't have a count of. Um, but we get to see the cool stuff that they do with it. It can grab and drag you around. Uh, that's what it does to uh, Mamuli. But uh, yeah, it, it completely, in, in just like three gulps, takes Jason Fleming down. It very slowly eats... Hanover? Yeah, Hanover. I couldn't, I could not get West Studi's name <laughs> out of my head. Uh, but it, yeah, very slowly eats him. It, it, there's, there's a bunch of different ways that in showing us a movie, we're going to have this multi-talented creature do things many different ways. It's going to creep up on you and drip slime over Joey's head, leading to the reveal that it's right above you. It can move silently. It comes up from the toilet. The first victim from yeah, the, the first <laughs> victim of the Octolus is this poor lady who, after the beast slams into the ship and everyone, all the passengers are panicking and fleeing, she runs to the bathroom and hides, and it comes up. Yeah. We don't see it then, but it comes up out of the toilet and gets her. There's a lot of fun things that we can do with this monster. Of course, like, we have to throw some things out the window. Does it make sense for it to uh, wrap up one of the uh, morsels, we'll say, in uh, Finnegan? To like, hmm, I want to take a look at you with my eyeball. <laughs> um, what's that boomstick you've got? Not my eye. <laughs> uh, like, 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 does it make sense? For no, but it, it does let us have fun with this monster. Um, which I think the movie is like this. This is a fun movie, exactly. And and the different aspects that are done with the monster, and even just in avoidance of it, um, are are kind of what's entertaining the most. Looking back, like regardless of how it's aged, storytelling wise and character wise, it is a fun movie with both just the action and the creature design. And um, Joey Petucci's one liners were great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the comic relief. He did a really good job, and. He obviously was it became a veteran of Steven Summer movies because he was Benny in the Mummy, the first Mummy, and he played Igor in uh, Van Helsing. Yeah, despite this flop, director Steven Summers managed to make it to finally make it to the big time hit of the Mummy in the next year. Um, and I don't know, maybe he learned a lot from this movie, figured out sort of how to balance the different kinds of genres that are being used in in. In amongst the horror moments. I feel like he definitely got the characters better. Because there's definitely more... The characters in The um, Mummy are a little bit more rounded and dimensional. I would argue in Deep Rising, I think the only really dimensional character is Petucci. Yeah. Because yeah. we see like the full gamut of his emotions. And he is the only... like No one in this movie really has a character arc. Like ev The jerks get justice. And that's kind of like the it for character progression. Like... Um, Finnegan starts off the movie as Finnegan. He ends the movie as Finnegan. But poor Petucci, he loses Layla, who is his girlfriend, and like, yeah, suffers that trauma. He's gonna have PTSD for a while. I bet after that, gets shot in the yeah, leg. Yeah, gets shot in the leg. It, Nearly gets cut in half by a, a surfboard. He, um, and then he has that moral quandary because we we're talking about how um Hanover was getting slowly eaten. Well, he was getting slowly eaten. That that moment gave Petucci a moral quandary because there was a gun nearby. He picks up the gun. And he head over like then grabs, you know, jump scare grabs his arm and you see that he's being slowly eaten on a pool table, I think, yeah. or a car table. And so Petucci, he goes to wa run off with the gun and he pauses and he turns around and he gives the gun to Hanover with the idea of like, okay, you don't have to go out in a painful way. Like you, he even says, don't say I never did anything for you. 
And then he goes to leave and Hanover tries to shoot him out of spite. <laughs> and then even Petucci Petu- yeah, curses and him out. finally the infinite bullets run out. Yes. And then, and you know, karmic justice because that's what happens to jerks in mo- movies like this. When Hanover <laughs> does try to take the easy way out, the bu- the uh, gun is out of bullets, and he has to suffer getting di- drunk by the Octolus. <laughs> so, in conclusion, the Octolus is actually a sarlacc, and it will digest you for a thousand years. Aquatic sarlacc. Aquatic sarlacc. Spoilers for the currently airing Boba Fett show, there are implications that there used to be an ocean on Tatooine. And mm. so, headcanon, the Sarlacc and the Octolus are the same creature. And they just evolved over time? Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some fish that, like the like the African lungfish, they can live underground in the sand in like a little mud pit for decades, even, and survive till the last monsoon, to the, or to the next monsoon season during the droughts. This all works very well for me. <laughs> One of the other... Big stars of this, of course, are the VFX and the set design here. Dustin, what are your thoughts on the cruise ship, the Argonautica, compared to our last one? Yeah, compared to the <laughs> Titanic? Uh, I actually really um, felt like this was complete. There were a lot of things about this movie that I felt were complete. And completion doesn't mean perfection. and Or, or right. you know, it, it doesn't mean that this is like, because they finished that, that it, it, it's that it's great. But um, seeing it light, like brightly lit, and everyone having fun, and everyone gambling. Uh, I believe one of the fun little trivia things about this movie is that uh, they're trying to show um, <laughs> like a foreign currency <laughs> to make it seem like, ooh, wow, this is this is fancy. But what they're showing are thousand and two thousand lira notes, which are essentially dollar bills in, in Italy. <laughs> yeah, because they're they're not worth that much. But like you get to see it brightly lit. I love the zoom in shot on the cruise ship, um, to, to for like its sheer size, but also just uh, you get to see it in luxury, and then you get to see it in tatters, uh, kind of Jurassic Park style. You get to see what it should look like, and then you get to see what it looks like ruined. I I think it feels real. Uh, sometimes the remains of what's in the ballroom are their own hazards. Aside from the ballroom itself, a lot of this movie happens in these sort of tunnels underneath, uh, mechanical service, pathways, um, the and bowels of the that's ship. fun. This is what you get for going to the machine yeah. room, and they have a good reason for going down there. Yep, they're looking for the ship parts. Yep. Right, and and that's that's just it. Is that they they are in these places, and then you've got like they did a good job covering these bases several times over, and sometimes it's done with just a uh, like an ADR like look, and I <laughs> but, but like they, they they will they will straight up like okay, one of the guys uh, Mulligan, um, played by Jason Fleming, he's got like a little electronic map of the ship, like he uploaded a blueprint to where he knows on the other side of this flooded hallway it's only 20 meters until we can get out if if it weren't for that plus the knowledge provided by the owner of the ship then you know that's a, a foolish way to die is to dive into that yeah. water so like they, they have schematics of where to go um they they essentially know what is around the corner or on the other side of a wall um Thanks to Canton's knowledge of the ship, which would be impossible. Of course, he would not know that. But, uh, like, li- little things like, like, 
though there's a, there's probably a bay where there are jet skis because as a cruise ship it's going to have all of these amenities um and like so yeah this is like the the underbelly of the ship everything about what happens on that ship seems like oh it's this is accurate uh, or at least accurate enough trillian survives the initial onslaught because she gets caught pitpocketing the cap captain and trying to break into this uh vault and they don't have a brig, or they think they say it's not completed yet. It's an unfinished brig, so they, yeah. So they put her in a freezer, which is an airtight room. So that's the one, probably the reason she survived the main, the first attack, was because she was in a room that the Octolus couldn't get into initially. And a bunch of the survivors camped out in the vault, too, for that reason. Yeah. And she had a bottle of champagne, and looks like a fun, like a fun little sushi spread to eat, and that's nice. Uh, I will say that that is a problem for me, though, is that drinking directly out of a freshly popped champagne bottle is extremely unpleasant. I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, it will fizz up on you. It's not, it's, it's not good for like your lungs and your guts. <laughs> it, it feels bad. But hey, uh, she was having her own little party, and she was safe, and we were happy to have that. Yeah. One of the things that is less well explained or developed is the boat for hire that Finnegan and his crew are piloting around. <laughs> this is actually like a World War II sea air salvage or rescue boat. And so it makes sense for it to have that gun on the back. And it just increases my desire for Finnegan to be like an older, very experienced guy who's been out on the sea forever like a salty sea captain. A salty sea World War II veteran. I guess more like a quince like from Jaws. Yes, exactly, Quint. You have spoiled my recast. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not actually annoyed. I'm just, I'm just, it's so funny that you stuck on it. All right, we'll, we'll just get some necromancy and revive Robert Shaw. <laughs> That's very funny. Because, yeah, it, it would just be, it, it would be so fitting for them to have, like, an, an old war story. Yeah. And, that, and that's why and he then, has this particular boat. It could potentially one thing that irked me a little bit, this movie does have a Linnet's love interest, not essential to story. <laughs> so, like, they kind of shoehorn Trillian and Finnegan ending up together, in my opinion, which it's an action movie. You have, the, you have to have the gratuitous leading love interest for the leading man. Um, the one thing, though, was uh, we couldn't figure out if the name of Finnegan's ship was the Hercules or Jezebel, because they refer to something called Jezebel. Those were the names of the engines. Okay. Oh, it has two engines. Yeah, That's Jezebel right. is engine is the left engine, and uh, Hercules oh, is the right engine. Oh, okay. Both of them got shot. When I did catch the name Hercules, though, I thought that was very clevering foreshadowing, because in the legend of Hercules, one of his 12 labors was the fight the Lemian Hydra, which those who know their Greek mythology was a beast that has one body, but uh, multiple heads that actually regenerate when you cut them off into, like, two heads. But the idea is one body, multiple heads, and it foreshadows, because at first you think, oh, there's multiple creatures running around. You find at the end, no, it's one monster with multiple feeding mouths. What an insight. JD, we gotta talk Dungeons & Dragons one day. Oh, I just introduced <laughs> to Nathan his first Dungeons & Dragons game last weekend. <laughs> Yes, we've... All right, I, we have to insert pause. We can't talk Dungeons & Dragons on this podcast. It will go for <laughs> unless, unless you, Unless we do the Dungeons & Dragons movie that came out way back in the day. <laughs> Hard pass. <Hard. laughs> but that's cool. No, that's, that's actually the idea that, like, the Hydra as being one body, multiple heads. 
and like the, the connection with the octopus here. I would have never thought of that. That's awesome. But right, we don't know the name of that boat, and um, it. I like that uh, kind of the feel of like this crew does their thing. You feel like um, Finnegan, Layla, Joey. Is it just the three of them? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You feel like they've worked together for a while. You feel like they're yeah. Joey and Layla are a couple. Well, right, but but you feel like they work together and have worked together as if like. This could be the movie at the end of five previous TV seasons of them doing shenanigans. Yeah. Right? I feel like they're, they're close-knit. I didn't really feel that way about the mercenary crew. Maybe, yeah. That they were sort of hodgepodge thrown together. There yeah, was, it, se- it seemed like... I don't know if I, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I, there was one kind of line that got cut off in... Based on Jason Fleming's reaction when he found out T-Ray died, I thought they might have been a couple. A couple, yeah. Yeah, it does kind of get it, cut off. I, I noticed that, Jason too. Jason Fleming goes, he was but, mine, and it gets cut off. It's yeah. Like, right. I, I think he's also the only one that really shows any, the word isn't empathy, but sort of connection to anyone. Because he also responds that way when the most unlikable of the crew, Mason, yeah, yeah. dies. He says something like, oh, no, not Mason. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, like, who cared about that a-hole? Like, <laughs> he was the worst. Yeah, they go out of their way to make the mercenaries unlikable. Like, the one of the Mamoli is... Not, is it Mamoli? One of them is a womanizer. Like, he just... Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He's just hound-dogging on girls all the time. They're just... The other guy was trying to gross out T-Ray purposely to make him throw up. Like, they go... They make them unlikable so that yeah, you have... yeah you know, satisfaction when they get eaten. In some foreshadowing for the later scene where another eye gets popped in the movie. Oh, yo, yeah, a good call there. Yeah, I, I believe it's one of those other little, like, facts about the movie is kind of rough. They, they, they apparently intentionally cast men who tested as ugly <laughs> to be the mercenaries so that you would not like them. Um, but I'm a bro, so when it comes to, like, the whole himbo style, them, like, teaming up to make one of the other ones, like, throw up, them kind of teasing each other all the time, every bit about them I kind of, I actually kind of did attach to those <laughs> yeah. guys, except for when they were beating up Joey. I did not like them. Yeah, well, that's getting to make them villain, villainize them. Right, right, and right, right Get right. us in the camp. Uh, I'm trying, I'm... I- I'm doing the exact opposite of what the movie wants you to do. It's like, <laughs> I'm liking these guys. Yeah, I want to hang out with them. Yeah, I mean, even like, like Hanover does have really good commanding presence, too, oh, yeah. over, over this. Like, he's the, like the camp counselor, <laughs> or like the frat house leader. Because he, <laughs> I think it's Mulligan when like they're trapped in the kitchen, and Mulligan's freaking out, and Hanover says, stand down, soldier, before I put you down. Like, that's... That's a commanding line. Rusty yeah. is great in this movie. He has instant command of any room that he's in. Yeah. He's one of these people who can just like look stern and silence the room in the movie, and it just works. You believe it totally. Yeah. yeah that's that's true. That you guys just brought up two things. The, the the first one is yeah, he calls Jason Fleming's character soldier. Are these guys military or were they military? They're certainly not part of any um, nationally backed outfit. So just using the term soldier, they needed to get that out of there because they're they're clearly not in any official chain of command. The second thing, you're right about West Studio, who's a guy that's been in uh, every oh, yeah over decades and decades. Um, but the, there is one thing that that irked me. I'm going to say like maybe an inconsistency was um, he's taught very early in the movie. He's talking to Finnegan, being like. Uh, um, yeah, you're getting us to where we need to go. How far are we away? 22 minutes. 
Um, and the, the, that's when the motto is brought up. Like, if you've got the cash, like, you don't ask any <laughs> questions. And he goes, <laughs> um, Hanover goes, you really don't want to know where we're going? Like, d- dude, you got the deal of a lifetime. Why are you egging him on? No, he doesn't want to know where we're going. That's the whole deal. Um, so, like, that's the only thing that, like, didn't really fit with that. But, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the p- performance there from West Duty. Uh, I can see it. Certainly commands me. I can see that line kind of fishing to see, like, kind of test, like, is fitting and going to double cross us. Yeah. Like, or even trying to push okay. him, like... I would really like to just take this ship and be in true total control. Yeah, give me a reason. Yeah, he's a he's great, and they and and he and Treat Williams have some pretty good chemistry. There's some really great moments, like especially that corridor scene when the monster is crunching in the walls of yeah, the corridor and approaching sh- them. They haven't shown the tentacles. The walls are buckling, so we get the idea this thing is strong enough to bend steel. And Hanover kicks the gun up and is hand it to Treat after they've just had this argument about. Don't you dare touch guns. It's like, okay, but I need you right now. Yeah, it's, it's like... <laughs> okay, but t- you can have this gun now. <laughs> yeah, yeah or, we're, or we're gonna die. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, that's when they first, like, find the hallway of, like, all yeah. the digested people. <laughs> yeah, that is a... Well, once again, the, 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 the movie goes through so many efforts to, like, make things make sense so that you don't do the thing of trying to pick it apart. Um, you know, what we know about most firearms is that when you submerge them in water, they no longer work. But what, when they're passing out the guns, I believe the last phrase after like a thousand round mag is like completely watertight yeah. to where you could submerge and use <laughs> it. Um, so like, okay, thank you for giving us that. Now we know why it works. Yeah. It, like little things like, like that are nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are, those are machine guns that in actuality, have a 100-round magazine in them that is all blanks, <laughs> and the single barrel of that actual machine gun has been then wrapped with a motorized spinning drum <laughs> that has five fake barrels. So if you look very closely, what's happening is that the actual real center barrel is firing its blanks and getting its muzzle flashed that way, <laughs> but then the other barrels are just rotating around it as that happens. <laughs> So, I mean, they look good. They're they're cool guns, and they sell... This movie is very good at selling the cool of things. Yeah. It sells... Good point. Yeah, like, I mean, there's all these lines that are dropped in throughout the movie, like you've mentioned earlier, the, oh, I know all about you Finnegan line from Canton at one point, and the sense there's there's just these little here and there bits sprinkled in that imply that they have a history before this i think is still in the era of the movie of the what i'll call the iconic hero team where you never introduce a backstory they just you yeah the, the first movie the, you show them it's like ghostbusters yeah where they, they show up as is they show up as is like in ghostbusters they sort of form the team in in that movie but they very feel much feel like they're not coming out of nowhere. They already have a rapport. They're yeah. not starting from a zero. This is a movie that starts in the middle, and it feels like it's setting up another movie that would be on that island afterwards. It, if uh, it did from well. what I was reading online, apparently, uh, before like Steve Summers got handed the mummy, they were considering handing him a reboot of King Kong. So that was supposed to be foreshadowing that. Ah, so a new monster universe. It makes total sense. I've, I actually thought about that last night. It, it makes total sense. It feels they, very they wound up on Skull Island. I think Skull Island is canonically in the Pacific too. Mm. It is. 
Yeah. Um, and now I'm reminded of just how much I love the lore of that world, of the monster's world. Oh, heck yeah. Um, yeah, it, it totally seems like that would, that would fit in. And uh, the Octolus uh, is of seemingly the scale of these other gi- uh, gigantic movie yeah. monsters. Uh, so that's, yeah, makes a lot of sense. No, we did see in, um, oh, maybe, maybe it's a backwards reference in the Kong Skull Island. There is that part where King Kong eats that, like, freshwater giant squid. So maybe Kong would win mm. against the Octolus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I put Kong as winning most matchups, but maybe that's just because I'm, like I said, I'm a, I'm a pro, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a King Kong fan. Fortunately, <laughs> yes, that's what the Octolus' bigger mouth is for, is when it encounters the larger kaiju. Yeah. <laughs> You see, like, it could be like a cookie cutter shark, too, because there is a type of shark called a cookie cutter shark. They're only like five inches long, very tiny, but they literally go up to large prey like great whites and whales and seals, and they go up and literally scoop, their jaws are structured in such a way they scoop out a divot, and it looks like a cookie cut, so they, they're the cookie cutter shark. That's fun, because like, I, was, I was thinking, and you know, sometimes we, when we look back at, like, what did you expect out of this movie? I did not expect the octopus. What did I expect? I don't know. When when I was like writing out like what I would say, what did I expect? I don't know, merman. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, Twelve or so different smaller creatures as opposed to one kaiju size one. Like like the it, you don't really know what to expect, and that's kind of fun uh, for anyone seeing it for the first time. Is that you don't know, and so you're on the same uh, on the same boat as everyone. Yes, indeed. Well, we've talked about it a lot, but. There are some really great effects and visuals in this movie. JD, do you want to go over some of what makes that so great? One of the things I appreciate about this movie, because I remember catching this program as a kid, and for the, I looked it up, I looked it up on the internet, I could not find it again. It was like a behind-the-scenes program on, on TV. I think it might have been on Discovery Channel, where it was like a whole bunch of, here's like a, how they did a bunch of effects in various movies, and there was a segment where they were talking about Deep Rising, and I recognized the movie as a kid, like, oh, that's the one with the giant octopus monster with the mouths that eat people. And because we discussed before how the creature regurgitates the hard skeletons of its prey, and the caskets herded to, like, the larder, where they find, like, the thousands of digested skeletons of the former um, passengers. And I remember as a kid seeing, they actually did all that in miniature, like, diorama size. Like, little teeny tiny skeletons painted in gooey gook and um, in this, like, hall room, like, store, big hangar room. And then later, when the ship does its obligatory explosion, because anytime you have a ship in a movie, it has to sink. Um, <laughs> they, when it starts flooding, they literally, I saw, like, the pine scenes clip was they took, like, a garden hose and flooded it to wash out all the skeletons. And I thought that was kind of <laughs> cool. And also, too, like, again, the... This was like in the still in the infancy of CGI. So the Oculus itself, I think, holds up pretty well, especially when you consider like the era of CGI it comes from. I think having it be like a not like a almost like a gelatinous creature lends to it holding up decently well. No, good point. There was like there was one particular shot where I'm pretty sure they forgot to do one level of rendering on the tentacles though, because they were like a matte brown instead of textured. But um, most of it hands up pretty well, and the, but they still relied a lot on practical effects, like the shot where they're running down the hallway and you see the floorboards popping up and explosions as the tentacle is you know chasing them, very uh, reminiscent of tremors coming from them underneath, and then you know like the practicality of like the gooey 
skeletons everywhere. Like some, like we, Nathan and I were talking, like what was the explosion budget and what was the slime budget for this movie? <laughs> and then, like you know, it, they actually did like the the probably the most famous kill in this movie is the half digested Billy scene where they shoot the tentacle yeah. and it spits out a half digested dude. And you could tell like it's half practical effects and the CGI is there is CGI involved in it, but it's used so sparingly. Like you could definitely tell like it was. The, it, like it was the step they needed before they could achieve the mummy when they had Emotep in his various stages of decomposition, but like it was very well done. And also good acting from the actor there. For like, you, like yeah, that's the behavior I would expect of a dude who whose half his brain is currently digested. <laughs> yeah, they did a good job. He did a great job of looking like that emerging from a tentacle. Yeah. Uh, the exact good amount of job. Uh, that he did that uh, he did a bad job acting as if he'd ever smoked a cigarette before <laughs> but he did a great job he did a great <laughs> job of looking like he just got exploded out of a tentacle so it's a it's, yeah it's gonna give and take <laughs> yeah and this is a movie that uh the a lot of the digital visual effects ended up being made by industrial light and magic um and yeah. had delayed the movie a long time because they were so advanced for the time i mean this is yeah. This is an early CGI movie to be doing complicated, many-limbed octopus tentacles. There's actually a, a note from, like, during uh, the making of uh, Finding Nemo movie, they had an octopus, and that was actually the very most complicated thing to make in there because the behavior of the tentacles and, and yeah. making them feel like they're moving deliberately, but in a lugubrious, gooey <laughs> way. Yeah, because um, it... Because yeah, octopi, they don't have any bones. They're more or less pneumatic powers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So getting that to feel right, and it's pretty cool. The movement is is mostly pretty convincing in this movie. So good job them, but it did delay you until you landed in the sights of Titanic. So yeah. eh. obviously, we yep. just gotta send the Oculus after um, the Titanic to yes. take out the competition. <laughs> That's what really what happened. It, the iceberg's a cover up. It, the Titanic's really the victim of an octolus. I'm not ruling it out. The octolus was in the iceberg, trapped, and the Titanic broke it out. <laughs> hey, the, the sky's the limit when it comes to monsters and what you can do with them, right? I mean, the, the, who's, who's to say that this creature is the only one like it, and who's to say that there's not one creature like it in each ocean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it also had to have come from somewhere. It's modeled after organisms we're familiar with so that implies that you know it had to be the offspring of something it did not just come fully formed out of the mariana trench or something <laughs> so it had to have been bred from something yep i like this <laughs> <laughs> great this has been a an excellent discussion but i believe that it is time to move on to our final segment let's hand out some superlatives we start as always with our mvp category dustin who or what is your MVP for this movie? MVP here is Kevin O'Connor and the writing of his character, Joey. <laughs> because yes. his presence makes the movie more fun, and the movie needs it. We need the scales tipped towards this is a fun romp through this escapade, as opposed to this is more serious and scary. We, we need the tone to be shifted towards, oh, that's kind of funny, instead of uh, grip your seat in horror. Um, and I think his character and his portrayal does that for us. So I think he, I'm not going to say he saves the movie, but he he gives us 
the tone at which we should appreciate it. So he gets the MVP for me. And he probably like helped set the tone for like Steven Summers when he then did The Mummy, because The Mummy definitely capitalizes on that humor and has it more refined and and spread across a whole bunch of characters as opposed to having it distilled into one singular comedic relief character. Yeah. Well, and let's say, I mean, hey, uh, it's not as if Fanka Chanson as... um, Trillian. As Trillian isn't Mm -hmm. funny. She has comedic lines. I do think they fall flat comparatively, but also uh, treat Williams as Finnegan. Like th- they are cracking wise a lot, and it's not into uh, cracking. Um, they, they are. They. They are. They're. They're. There's. It's a joke a minute. Um. But it's. It's. It's better to have the one guy who's mostly jokes, and then everyone else. Uh, can kind of fit into that theme as as opposed to just like we have one guy who's always goofing up. So I I I think it that's why he gets such high praise for me. All right, JD. Uh, my MVP goes to the Octolus. <laughs> it's the reason I watch this movie. It's the reason <laughs> I enjoy this movie. Excellent creature design, horrifying creature design. Like it hits like all the right parts of Ski and between its the, between the body horror of its victims and just the overall creature design. Like I said, drawing inspiration from bobbit worms and cephalopods and vampire squids and all that. It's like the grain of truth that's in the pearl of the horror. <laughs> yeah, it gets a great build up. Before you see it, you're scared by it. You yeah. see all sorts of terrifying yeah, the, evidence. Exactly. The first couple of victims, you don't see any kind of tentacle or any kind of body at all. It's like they took a book from a page from Jaws. You yeah. don't see it. Like you just see people getting dragged through the water. And then finally, when it's revealed, it's like, oh, it's a bunch of snakes. And then it's like, oh, no, it's a huge octop- octopode. Yeah, that's a great mystery. Is a great mystery design. And I'm going to go with the MVP actually as Bob Bupkin, who is the designer of the monster and of the special makeup effects of the movie. Um, spectacular job of giving this movie its horror <laughs> visuals. Yeah. And especially now knowing that Bob Bupkin, who also did like, he, he did the thing, it makes sense. Oh, yeah, that makes sense why the body horror and like the gore effects look very, like, have the same pedigree, so to speak. Yeah. All right, well, let's move down to our next category here, the Best Supporting Actor or Actress. Dustin? Uh, for me, I'm going to go Wes Studi as Hanover uh, for his presence, uh, and that comes from experience. Uh, not necessarily how the character is written, but just uh, his presence. Um, I, I had originally thought that, um, I think, Canton's character, so Anthony Heald as Canton, I almost went that way, but I realized that I was mainly just being pulled by, like, his necessary role in how the story must happen. Mm. And that's why it was getting my attention. But when in reality, uh, it was West Studi's acting that gets him the best supporting for me. Yeah. JD. Uh, my best supporting, since I did give my MVP to the Octolus, goes to Kevin O'Connor as um, Joey Petucci. Because I feel like out of all the characters, he was less one. Like, he, he's the only one we saw, like, go through any dimension. Because he goes through the loss of his girlfriend. And we see him, like, mourn her and, like, you know, and, you know, comic relief and stuff. And, like, he's the curious one. He's the one that first investigates that, um, it's like, wait, why do these mercenaries we have on our boat have torpedoes? Like, what are they doing? <laughs> like, he's, <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like out of all the cast, he probably had the most dimension, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, absolutely. For my own support, I'm actually going to call out Famke Jansen, who I do think in the beginning of this movie, she does a really great job of selling a almost, you know, gem thief kind of personality who 
you're excited for her plot to take its course there. And I think she's pretty compelling the rest of the movie, despite the fact that she has such a small role in in kind of... Wouldn't it have been interesting if, like, she, her target to steal was, like, something that had drawn the, the octolus? Like, all great ideas here. Yes. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, have it all interconnect. Yeah, that would have been spectacular. Oh, man. The other idea we had was what if she had been, like, a sleeper Interpol agent or something. Or that, yeah. Anything <laughs> anything to tie her more into the plot, because she's great whenever she's on screen. Yeah. And so, yeah. She, she could have literally been anything. Yeah. 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 She did not have to be a jewel thief. Uh, she did not have to be a pickpocket. She could have been anything. Uh, well, no. No. You know what? We can't, we can't say that, because they did do a good job. If she was not somehow doing a criminal act, then the captain would not have thrown her in the kitchen brig. So, like, it had to happen that way. Not necessarily. She she might have been found out that she was snooping around to what yeah, the she was, was. Yeah, if, yeah, if she was, like, Interpol and, like, investigating, like, like uh, Canton could have been like, oh, crap, she's gonna find out my insurance scam idea. Shove her in the freezer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shove her in the freezer. She's gonna find my CD-ROMs <laughs> melt. My CD-ROMs that melt chips exactly. from the core. Oh, nineties. I'm imagining that what this is is that it's like <laughs> overclocking software for a computer, and all it's doing is just totally killing the cooling fans, or just turning off all the cooling fans on the ship's computers. <laughs> Don't you bring common sense into this? <laughs> I'm trying to save this. <laughs> uh, next up on our list is the hidden gem for this movie. Dustin, what do you got? Derek O'Connor as Captain Abernathy. He's a hidden gem because the movie hides him because we don't get enough of him. I, I thought he would have been fun as part of the survival crew. Um, we we've already split up like different archetypes. We didn't really talk about the archetypes, but like of who is left. And, and in the end, we don't have each of those archetypes shine, but as having somebody who was actually crew member and has the experience of being on the water, I guess in a different way than Finnegan. Like that, that would be, that would have been fun, but uh, yeah, he's, he's a hidden gem because we didn't get enough of him. He also had a memorable, memorable death too. I don't know, like having seen this one leg, like he got, he's getting ripped down through the like uh, catwalk and just the fact like his leg pops. His leg, yeah, he gets folded up like a yeah, pizza basically, was yeah. like, mm. Again, body, certain aspects of body horror skeeved me out and that was one of them. <laughs> yep. JD? Uh, I'm gonna go my hidden gem, the Hercules reference, because I'm not 100% sure if it was intentional, but if it was, good on them. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a great connection to showing you that they have done their research, that they love these monsters too. Yeah. So, yeah, and for me, actually, I'll pull out one of the cast who didn't get as much of a role as probably she should have. Una Damon as Layla um, is yeah. great at the beginning of the movie. They have, she has great rapport with joey and john finnegan <laughs> and it seems like she should have had a bigger role going forward in the movie it would be it would be great if this crew all together in you know sequels down the line if they if if the movie had been a little bit more successful so next on our list is to recast one cast member dustin who would you switch out in this movie so uh, this is i have to explain it a little bit uh i'm gonna go with the role of Vivo is played by Jaiman Hansu, who I love. They waste him. They waste Jaiman. <laughs> and so because of that, I'd like to put in Alan Cumming Ooh. instead of Hansu. Uh, and Alan Cumming specifically sort of the Boris Grichenko style. 
I think we need a techie science guy instead of, I believe Vivo's role is to blow up the vault, and he ends up getting the card to open the vault when he opens the door and then gets an axe to the yep. face. Um, he's completely wasted, so what if we make his character a little different where he's the one that reveals the info about the Otoya? Because mm. he's this techie science guy, and he's got the info. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me that uh, Canton is like, well, let me tell you about these uh, these creatures that at 30,000 yeah. feet are this size. But it, it, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But having one of the crew guys, or maybe it's one of the mercenaries, he's like, oh, I'm here to be a demolitions guy, but my background is actually in biology <laughs> or, or um, I don't have to explain it that much further, but that's the only reason I'm recasting it because I'd, I'd love to see Jaimon in a better role. I mean, speaking of boat movies, he was incredible in Amistad. <laughs> yep. uh, but but I, I'd love to see that. I think he's just wasted. So let's let's change the character in order to do this recast. All right. JD, who would you switch out? Uh, my recasting is less of a substitute an actor because, honestly, I thought all the actors did great with their roles. It's just some roles were more rounded than others and flatter than others. So my recasting would actually be instead to switch the main protagonist because it's mostly um you know john finnegan as the everyday hero man of the action <laughs> film i should want to see patucci as the like the focus as the main character because a he his character has the most dimension b like it'd be interesting you have like you know this big action movie you think it's like oh you know john everyday hero man is going to be the lead and then you find out you're actually following like the beleaguered mechanic who gets bullied around. Like, I thought that'd be an interesting point of perspective for a movie of, like, like this. Yeah, and you'd get some time where, like, he and Layla swap complaints about how annoying Finnegan's captaincy is. Yeah. As they're both sent off the bridge while Finnegan plays solitaire. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, hey, flag on the play. That's an excellent change, one thing. This is... Where's your recast, (laughs) (laughs) JD? We had this discussion. I decided to allow it. Okay. I have a different chance one thing. (laughs) It's okay. The extra lineman has reported eligible to go downfield. You got permission. Fine. (laughs) I put my hands up in the air. We're good. (laughs) Review in the booth has come back. (laughs) Yeah. So for my recast, what strikes me in this movie is that Finnegan is very much the everyday action hero kind of type, but I don't think that really fits this. And I feel like, as I've alluded to before, it would be awesome if he were played by Robert Shaw as Quint in Jaws, but probably Robert Shaw from the same era, because it would be so awesome if you had this old World War II era sea captain Mm. who has had horrible experiences in the water, tells terrifying stories, and it's him who reveals knowledge about the monster. Because legit, I'm not 100% sure if it was World War I or World War II, there was a case where an Allied vessel got sunk, and there were six survivors hanging onto like they couldn't like get into the boat properly. They were hanging on World War One. It was World War One, and they were hanging onto the boat. And because all five of the eyewitness accounts match up, they they are pretty sure this legit happened. A guy got picked off by a giant squid, <laughs> like it came up out of the depths and dragged <laughs> him under. <laughs> Who better? And it would add this soldier dynamic if Hanover was like former for military too. Yeah, and and then he's judging the mercenaries yeah. for not being real soldiers. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> you, <laughs> you terrible turncoats. Maybe this but, maybe this could be a movie that could be rebooted. 
I think I, I think we're about to uh, figure out some ideal uh, ideal things here. So I, actually, let's let's yeah, let's crack open let's, this oyster. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's open this bottle here. Get to the, get to the juicy get, fish inside. Get, get the fish. Um, yeah, let's go straight to change one thing here, JD. Uh, my change one thing would be to expand more on Layla. Either let her survive longer in the film, or her death, like, she gets dragged out of the... She's in the middle of repairing the ship by mindlessly blow-torching a random piece of metal. So either, if she has to go in that moment, have her fend off the tentacle, or even her assailant, unknown assailant, like, don't show the tentacle, just show her fending off her assailant with a freaking blowtorch. That would actually be pretty cool. And also, you know, give her some more agency in her demise, so to be like, she went down fighting. Or just let her last longer. Because then if she last manages to survive longer in the film, it's so much more of a gut punch when Petucci find, discovers that she didn't make it. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. It, having a little more of her because she's close to Joey. like that. that I, I like that it, as well. I mean, it's it's not only because she's close to Joey. I thought it was a, a kind of a fun, cool character. Yeah. And we just didn't get enough. Dustin, what would you change? All right, buckle up. <laughs> All right. The enemy of this movie is a giant Otoya. Uh-huh. What do we change? We eliminate the scenes in the beginning where the mercenaries are himboing it up and trying to make T-Ray puke. Uh-huh. Instead, we use that time to see either the international mercenaries or just someone else observing, maybe on the land, maybe on a boat, a curio shop or maybe a street game where people are betting on animals. Think of cockfighters. <laughs> think of just like wondrous things to look at. Or just being general street urchins. Well, one of the games, one of the things they're vis- one of the visuals they're looking at is that exact description of the octopus getting the fish inside the bottle. Or maybe mm. one of the, the things we're looking at is have you ever seen uh, an octopus like unscrew a, oh, a, a yeah. mason jar to get out? Like, so you're seeing something wild. And it, but it's at the scale that we expect. Maybe there's a starfish yeah. inside the bottle. Maybe there's a little piranha or something. They're betting who's going to win. I don't know what that could be, but the idea of having that very early in the movie, and then 50 minutes later, we see deep sea gigantism as, oh, this is, this was a bit of a foreshadowing. Because as I, as I mentioned, I didn't know what to expect. If you were to add something like that at the beginning, I think that could be a lot Dude, of fun. They said fin- Finnegan was the one that brought up the baby octopus in the bottle. If we were to recast him exactly. as a Robin, Ro- Rob Shaw like oh yeah scout like sea dog he would know. or have him have a pet octopus instead of a parrot in the beginning and show <laughs> yes. him feeding the octopus via bottle yes yeah this totally. is, this like is we, great. we see we see maybe it's the mercenaries like what's going on in here finnegan oh yeah you gotta check out roxy my octopus watch this and yeah so like the idea that we have a connection somewhere because i think what we what we have is a heist insurance scam gets interrupted by something for no reason. <laughs> but if if we if we connect it to just one extra little thing, like what uh, we've just brainstormed here, I think that could be awesome. Yeah, yeah. And you know, for my change, one thing I, I'm out for that lifeboat plot hole that we mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> because how creepy yeah. would it be if instead of just approaching this cruise ship all like dark at night, you are approaching a cruise ship with. A full stock of lifeboats, all in the water, and all of them empty. Oh, like maybe blood residue, like they got them in the lifeboats. Maybe, or... yeah, yeah, or, or or just nothing. Or the lifeboats are full of uh, the lifeboats are full of hatching 
octopod eggs, <laughs> and so you can't get in. Otherwise, they're going to feed on you. I said, I said, I could, yeah, I I like said if you introduce eggs, I could bring up a whole other thing because female octopi, they only breed once because that's one reason why squids have like, octopi, even though they have human intelligence. The reason they have not taken over is because they don't live very long because they mostly die after breeding because, well, the male legit goes senile and just wanders off and dies of octopus Alzheimer's after mating. Female octopi, their eggs take like, I think, two to three years to actually hatch and she'll basically make like a little den and she'll camp with them that entire time. She will not eat or leave her babies that entire time. So she kind of like how some CB species of spiders they will starve themselves to death to make sure the next gen- next generation comes out so the reason we don't have squid overlords is because they don't survive long enough to um hmm. live long enough to machinate their plans we don't have enough time to listen to them they're gone by the time we pay attention that could add a whole other aspect too like what if the octolus attacked a ship to make it like it's breeding den lay yeah, eggs and then yeah. have there like we go. All, that would make sense what have, that's what they found at the back of the ship instead of just like all the bodies, like they found all the bodies with like young yes. octopus. I see what yeah, you're saying. But, yeah, but yeah. It, it, it looked for a source of food for its babies because other animals do that. There's, um, I think it's the tarantula hawk wasp where it will sting a tarantula, bring it back to its egg den, and so that its newborn babies has something to eat. Hmm. So it could be that's why it attacks ships is to collect baby food <laughs> for its little munchkins. Yep. All right. Well, we've. Patched up a lot of plot holes here, patched up the way this movie works out, but let's move on to some things that this movie did spectacularly. What, Dustin, for you, is the best shot of this movie? Uh, JD mentioned it. It's uh, when Abernathy gets swallowed. Uh, it is It is the, I think, the cleanest, quickest um, swallowing. <laughs> uh, you, you, see, you see the strength of uh, the tentacle itself. And then as soon as like one inch is given, uh, it kind of like cocoons up and grabs him all at once and takes him down. Um, I thought that was really clean looking. Um, and, it, and it shows kind of up close just how quick this thing can get you. Uh, so I thought that was the best shot. Did he? Uh, my best shot was the head reveal when they um, reveal like, oh, it's all one creature. And also too, particularly the eye, because they, however they animated the eye, it is very true to life of deep sea invertebrates like it looks exactly like a vampire squid eye with the way the eyes like the gleam reflection in fact we were looking up the cover art and it shows like the big close-up of an eye they put a pupil in the eye on the cover art when it's pupilless like a true deep sea squid it's kind of milky cloudy yeah basically like if you look look up a video of a vampire squid it looks exactly like how it does on the octolus and like you did your animal research very well good job Yep. Uh, for me, it's the shot of the Argonautic blowing up. Uh, this is a 110-foot model. So we talked about, obviously, the model of the Titanic were even bigger, but 110 foot is a pretty substantial model oh, yeah. to that, build for this movie. That is longer than my house. That is a big, big thing to blow up. That must have been <laughs> awesome to do. So <laughs> I imagine one take only if it's a model that big. Though. I would imagine that is one of those terrifying nail biting, you get one chance for this shot. Better put it to use and it works great. <laughs> Moving a little bit broader, let's go out to best scene Dustin. Uh, best scene here. Jet, ski, tentacle chase <laughs> through a claustrophobic and elaborate underbelly of flooded mechanical and service passageways. <laughs> Toward an elevator that must be shot open with a sawed-off shotgun. 
and then closed again to force the tentacles to comedically jam into the closing wrought iron doors. <laughs> That's the best scene, y'all. <laughs> it is totally awesome. <laughs> Morbius from the Loki show would be proud. Skidoos. <laughs> JD? Uh, my best scene is the half-digested Billy scene, just because it's the first time we get a glimpse of the actual, like, of the flesh, CGI flesh monster, but also, again, because of the melding of the practical effects and CGI effects, and just how traumatic, like, not many, like, movie monsters, they usually, like, take you out quick, and you're done, but, like, the fact, like, oh, you're, this, you're yeah. drunk, and, like, the horror... Like I said, I'm not like a gore hound, but I do appreciate the practical effects that go into like horror movie makeup and like the practicality, especially since I know how to do like mold ma- mold making and casting for stuff like that. So like it was just like that. Like as a kid, that was like the scene that stuck with me. Both the trauma of his half digested brain screaming and that just how he looked. It was yeah. it was like oh, dude, this is bad. <laughs> this is bad. If you get caught by this thing, yep. Yeah, that that is a spectacular and very disturbing effect that really sells you on you do not want to die to this monster. So then when later the evil leader of the mercenaries goes out with karmic justice, yeah. it's all the sweeter. And it you know, it, it makes them more panicky too. Like oh, you, yeah. see, you see um Mulligan like have this like existential crisis in the kitchen and like it amps like they get when we get panicky, you get stupid. Yep. And when you get stupid, yep. you become fish food. Yep. For me, the <laughs> for me, my favorite scene was when finally Hanover decides to trust Finnegan just enough to kick the gun to him as the tentacles are starting to crush the walls in around yeah. them. This is, I think, the moment in the movie when it turns from being the action movie diehard esque kind of mystery plot to being truly a survival horror movie because this is when the characters realize hey no matter what we were doing before no matter what this movie was about before this moment it is now about surviving the monster and it's just a very strong moment for me uh next up is the best wardrobe or makeup moment dustin what'd you see this is uh joey's hat (laughs) Uh, it is absolutely necessary to this movie uh, first of all, it makes him visually more fun because he kind of looks like a smurf or a gnome. Uh, his hair is terrible. He's an So it works to cover that up. And that's probably a, uh, a Kevin O'Connor problem, not a Joey problem. Um, also, the hat allows Treat Williams to do some actual emotional acting later on when he finds the hat. Uh, so it is the best wardrobe item, I think. But I do want to add on, attack something onto this, which is it's really difficult to make long hair look good on camera. Uh, when it's wet. Yeah. Um, and they halfway accomplish that with Famke, Famke Jansen, but they completely abandon it with Kevin O'Connor, which is why the hat is so helpful. Uh, my best wardrobe moment goes to the fact that they allow Trillian to get out of that slinky red dress into actual practical clothing. <laughs> like, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, let the female character have some practical clothing yeah. to yeah. survive the rest of the movie in. <laughs> All right. For for me, it's it's just got to be... The hilarious Finnegan's dad flannel that he's just yeah. running around the whole movie. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm the everyman. And I'm just, I've been thrown into this for some reason. And I'm just going to deal with it. <laughs> going to make a run to Home Depot later. Uh, you want to get some hot dogs on the way? <laughs> well, they were looking for parts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 
And last up, what is your favorite quote from the movie, Dustin? This actually was really difficult for me to choose. Um, I, I did choose a Joey line, but it was there's several like it, so I'm just going to use this one to represent the kind of lines he has, which is uh, T-Ray says to him, I don't like you. And his response is, you don't even know me. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff like that in the movie. I, I think uh, Trillian says something like makes fun of his face. Like, I'm going to break your face, not like anyone would notice. <laughs> yes. and, and I think his answer is like, where is this coming from? <laughs> like, like, he's pulling away from the comedy. Like it's So it was hard to pick just one, but I'm going to go with it. You don't even know me. That was also in my topic for best quote. And second up was, I think we killed Whoa. a speedboat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great line um for for me the quote is actually a, at finnegan's expense where he's talking with one of with mason the most dislikable of the mercenaries who gets in a pretty great insult here of finnegan saying like a fine wine i'm aging gracefully thank you and mason comes back to him and says you look more like a keg of beer to me it's, it's a good so yeah all right well, that wraps it up for our superlatives. JD, before we move into our ratings and final section here, what would you like to plug for our show? Uh, being the creature fanatic that obviously this was one of the many creature-based films that was formative of my childhood, and now I make a living making creature art, you can find my stuff as painting dragon feathers across social media, and I do make convention appearances. I, at the time of this recording, I will be at SetsuCon in Altoona, PA at the end of January, and then I will be at KatsuCon in National Harbor in DC in February. As long as the, you know, the Rona doesn't screw everything up. The, the, the Octoli come through and <laughs> get all the... Yeah, cross fingers on that, but even if not the con, check her out online. She has a raft of great, great material. I actually do have a, pr a block print I call Release the Quacken, which is a giant <laughs> yes. rubber duck with tentacles swallowing a ship. So, on, on brand for this movie. <laughs> the Murduck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move into our final section here. Let's get some ratings and recommendations. Dustin, on a scale of zero to five stars with half star increments, how do you rate this movie? This movie's fun, y'all. This movie's fun is uh, you have to buy into the tone that I think is very helpfully moved, like, like given to you by Kevin O'Connor's character. It's a 3.5 from me. It is reminiscent of greater action movies, movies that didn't end up in the triple digits at the box office. You can see why there's people that don't love it and why it's got such low ratings. It doesn't mean it's not fun. It's definitely above average because of the campiness or the corniness of some of this stuff. But uh, there's, there's too many instances where they don't lean into that more. Um, I didn't recast it, but you know, th think of more characters like, like a Steve Zahn or like, imagine if there's a, a, all of the mercenaries are as fun as Joey. It could be that, but it's not. Um, and hey, Steven Summers eventually gets to his incredible movies. But uh, this one, uh, for even, even with some of the nostalgia for JD, I still think this is just barely better than average, uh, though it is fun. So 3.5 for me. JD, how would you rate it? Honestly, I would. I was thinking give it a three point <clears throat> five as well because, um, like I said, I had nostalgia goggles with thinking about this movie a lot. I remember re introducing it to some friends in college and enjoying it a lot then. And then rewatching it now for this podcast, it's like, oh, these characters are flatter than what I remember. 
into some little bit of plot holes. So, like, I think, like, like we talked about a lot of areas that could be improved. Like, it almost seems like it's one step away from being, very like, a very memorable. Like, it's one step away from, like, hitting, like, the achievement that Predator did. So, yeah, one more draft. Yeah, like, if, if the script had gone through one more draft and maybe some of the characters rounded out a little bit more, it would rank higher. Um, I would... I honestly would also depend to like I know people like it is a somewhat gory movie that I would not necessarily recommend it to so that might skeeve off a bunch of people like so um yeah I'm gonna stay with 3.5 to 4 stars depending on what kind of mood you're in so I'm right there with you guys on three and a half stars I think this is a movie that is a lot of fun it is objectively not a great written movie it has areas where you could you could totally cut the fat out of the out of this movie in a lot of ways this is one of these this is one of these scripts that you could delete the first 20 pages on and it would almost work better in a way where (laughs) you just start out on the ship jd's mentioned a couple of times like hey what if this movie literally started out with they board the ship and they don't know anything you cut out a lot of the sort of weird genre interactions that are happening and you get a lot of other things but yeah i think this is for all of that an incredibly fun movie with great effects and a lot of heart put into its monsters so it is pretty great dustin for next time would you like to help me pick a movie uh yeah are we gonna do titanic 2 or (laughs) i guess this is (laughs) maybe it's somebody else but absolutely ready to help yeah yeah or poseidon poseidon adventure that that would be another option adventure uh, Uh yeah option number one jerry Maguire, 1996 when a sports agent has a moral epiphany and is fired for expressing it he decides to put his new philosophy to the test as an independent agent with the only athlete who stays with him and his former colleague Option number two, Bill Durham from 1988. A fan who has an affair with one minor league baseball player each season meets an up-and-coming pitcher and the experienced catcher assigned to him. Option number three, breaking away from 1979. A working-class Indiana teen obsessed with the Italian cycling team vies for the affections of a college girl while searching for life goals with his friends. So Dustin, what'll it be? These are some, like... Kind of a counterculture sports movies here. Yeah, let's do number three, Breaking Away. 79, Breaking Away. All right, that will be it for next time. Once again, JD, thank you so much for coming on and for picking, introducing us to this movie. Thank you for having me. And to all of you out there, thank you all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews and subscriptions do help others find the show. Give us a like on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro or email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is appreciated and will go toward making the show better for you, our listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Dustin? Well, ain't love grand? Y'all want to lie on the ground and make snow angels together?